in my life this semester, I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful to get to walk amongst men and women of God like you. I'm grateful that we get to come together and this last night of Pi Alpha, we're going to celebrate some people loving Jesus. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. I'm also, uh, I want to introduce you to some of my favorite friends. Uh, they're my family, and you know, that's why I have to have a family, so I have best friends. Hey! Hey! hey. That's uh, my oldest son, Theodore, on the my wife, Shannon, my, my younger son, Eli, who looks in that picture to be half the size of my wife. Uh, he grew, he grew quickly, although Sam, I think, I think you could be uh, Lee is always, almost as big as him already. Oh my God. Yeah, pretty good too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Last service for a lot of you. Some of us are going on to new things. So tonight, before we get into baptisms, I feel like it would be remiss if we didn't talk about how to have a good future with Jesus. Yeah. Okay? Who wants to have a better future than past? Me! Yeah, I, I would like that. So we're going to talk about that. Who remembers, before we took a two-week break, what our sermon series was this semester? Ah. So guess what we're doing tonight? Ah. You guys are so You guys are so You live it tonight. Let's look at Acts chapter 7. You have your Bibles? Let's look at Acts chapter 7. Verses 56 and 58. It'll be on the screen if not. Acts 7, 56 through 58. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is an odd scripture to start with if you're not familiar with the context, but for those of you that were here for Trevor Morvan's incredible sermon, that the man being stoned here is Stephen. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to draw our attention to this very last word, which is a name at the very end right there, Saul. Yeah. Hmm. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. We're going to talk about Saul. So let's pray real fast. Father, we need you, Jesus. Yes. Father, we pray that the spirit that you ushered in through worship would continue through our sermons, would continue through the baptisms. Father, would you be lifted high? Father, would I not get in your way? Would you open our hearts, our ears, and our minds to receive what you have for us tonight? To your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's jump to Acts 8. Acts 8. 1 through 3. And Saul approved of the killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, if you're not reading it as a chapter chunks, you just read the verse in verse seven or chapter seven. You're like, oh, Saul, he was there. Well, that's cool. And then you get to LA, and you're like, oh, he approved. And so that word approved actually is not a great translation. It actually, means he voted for. So he wasn't just like, good job, kill He was like, I think he should be, and I cast my vote. Yeah. So it was more than just uh, there. So if I look at that second half of this verse, where I, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. Sounds like a man on a mission. Yeah. Right? It didn't sound like he was just willy-nilly like, ah, maybe I'll get around to destroying the church. Sure sounds like he was doing it. Yeah. What interests me is why was he so determined to destroy the church? If you've grown up in church and you've heard this talk about Saul enough, you might be like, this is just what he did. What do you mean, why? So for a minute, I want to just talk about why in the world would he do that? What do we know about Saul? Well, he tells us later 
that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what do we know about Pharisees? They were very religious. They were followers of the law. They believed in a Messiah. They actually believed in miracles and the resurrection from the dead. Those are all the things the early church believed that were in line with what the Pharisees believed. So wherein was the problem? It was this. Those, those early followers of Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah, a man from Nazarene. And you hear the Pharisees, and the Bible said, can anything good come from Nazarene? They said, yes, God, there can be. Thank you, Jesus. But the idea that the Messiah would come and then be killed was just preposterous to the Pharisees. They had an understanding that the Messiah was going to come as a, as a, as a king to rule with physical might, not spiritual dominance. The idea of laying down life to build followers was foreign to them. So this idea that it was Jesus who died and was raised again, and it was the Pharisees' fault that we killed him? You're out of your mind, and I'm going to destroy you. So here's the crazy thing, is that Saul actually thought he was doing God's work. So up until this point, he, he was following exactly what he'd been taught. So you couldn't actually fault him for his upbringing, like which would be something where we go, oh, how was he raised? Very religious. Like Saul was the kind of guy you would love to have in your small group. He was incredibly moral. Like you would never have to be like, Saul, you can't go out drinking tonight. You know, he'd be like, you can't go out drinking tonight. <laughs> he'd be like, Saul, what does it say in the prophet Isaiah? And he'd quote the whole thing to you. Like he knew the scriptures better than, he'd be an incredible small group member. But he wasn't doing the will of God. He thought he was working for the righteousness of God. Yeah. And what the Bible calls is when you're thinking you're doing the right things for God, but you're not actually doing the right things for God, is it calls that self-righteous. Oh. And, and really what self-righteousness is, is, might be honest, it's just men and women who are more interested in their own goodness oh, than that of the people around them. Oh, you ever said this in your own heart? You're like, thank God I'm not like... Oh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You ever, thought, you ever thought that before? And you're like, well, I'm not as bad as... Anybody get to an argument with their parents? They're like, you did this, but Johnny didn't. You know, you're like, how does that change the fact that you were disobedient? It somehow, it somehow makes us feel a little bit better. That's called self-righteousness, and it's gross. You're just like, if the whole series of love, I'm just not going to be as bad as that guy. What if that guy is just slightly less terrible than the worst person ever, and you're just better than him barely? That sounds like a fun world. Okay, we're going to jump back into Acts. We're going to be there a lot tonight. Acts 9, 1 through 9. Hold on to your seats. This is a little bit of a long one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he did not discriminate. He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And he neared Damascus on his journey. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell on the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Stop. That is the appropriate response if all of a sudden you're knocked to the ground and can't see. That's like, like, yeah, someone's talking to me. Yeah, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anybody. Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand in Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And my friend, Mr. Uh, Mr. F.B. Mayer, he says this. He said, it's an awful discovery when a great light from heaven shows a man that what he has regarded his solemn duty 
has been one long sin against the dearest purposes of God. It's an awful discovery to realize the thing that you've been living for has actually been anti-God. Thinking that you were in right standing with him. Does anybody, don't put your hands up, does anybody felt like that? You're like, I'm doing pretty good. And then God shines a light on your heart, and you're like, I'm not feeling pretty good. <laughs> this is the story of what we know, we know him now as Paul. This is the story of his conversion. It's actually the story of our conversion, if we're honest. We were, we were marching a direction, and God intervened. And not, it might not have been dramatic like this, where all of a sudden you were knocked off and you can't see for three days, and you're like, well, I should probably give my life to whoever this is. But it was still powerful. And so when we talk about Saul's conversion, I don't want any of us to be like, well, my conversion wasn't like that, so maybe it wasn't real. False. This is the only instance I have in Scripture of this happening to this guy. Peter's conversion was not like this. Right? So don't don't ever make the comparison because I didn't experience Jesus like this person, then I must not know him. But in fact, we serve an infinite God, which means that there are infinite representations of him in this room. We all together create a mosaic that paints a better picture than one of us on our own. Does that make sense? Okay. So, Saul thought he was doing the work of God, and real quick, that fantasy evaporated. He was on his way to Damascus to kill the church. Now he's on the way to Damascus being led there because he can't see. Everybody, everybody felt like you, you got knocked off your horse and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Saul was there. I just, this is like, in case you're ever curious, what does it look like when God humbles a man? This is what it looks like. 100%. You're on mission, a mission you believe for God, and you're like, I can't see. So for three days, Saul was blind. Can you imagine you see your whole life, and then all of a sudden you can no longer see. What is your response going to be? Right? Fear? 100%. Yeah, kind of freaking out, maybe a little bit of panic. I don't know that I would have been as calm as Saul and just been like, I should rethink my life. <laughs> but he was very religious, so he actually believed that God actually spoke to people through the miraculous. So it didn't blow him away. He just was like, oh, I'm the bad guy. That's what blew him away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Three days. We know that because we have a record of it. But imagine being Saul. You don't know that it's going to last for three days. Day one happens and you don't even know what time it is because you can't see. They don't have watches. So you're just in darkness all of a sudden. And which time stands still. Everybody felt like time stands still and you're never going to get out of the current situation. Everybody felt like that? And all unbeknownst to Saul, there's this beautiful man named Ananias that God speaks to. And he says, I want you to go lay your hands on this man. And what do we know about Ananias? Not much. This is a guy that God spoke to, and he had the audacity to speak back to God. Jesus, do you know this man? Which, side note, that's a hilarious question. (laughs) It'd be like if somebody was trying to describe my son to me, and they're like, hey, do you know him? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. Jesus, are you sure? This man is the guy that's trying to kill your people. And then, Jesus says this incredible Beautiful thing. Let's just look at it real quick. Acts 9, 15 through 19. It says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. They make this sound so common. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I get some food. Yeah. I feel better. You're like, what just happened? Right? Here's what's crazy about Ananias. We don't know anything about him after this. He's done. But because of him, we have Paul. Because of Paul, we have everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Because of this one guy who just loved Jesus in obscurity. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. One person with Jesus is always a majority. Yeah. Yeah. Always. So what God could do through you is infinite. So just because you don't have a platform or a stage does not mean you are insignificant at all. Yeah. What matters is whether you're obedient. And here's how you know that Ananias was obedient. Because he pushed back to Jesus like, sure. And Jesus didn't strike him down. Yeah. You're familiar with John the Baptist's dad. He was like, how could this be? You're not going to talk. And that didn't happen to Ananias. Jesus mm -hmm. said, no, go. This is what I'm going to do. And I said, okay. So that's how you know you're intimate with God is when he tells you to do something and you can ask for clarification. And he responds without striking you down. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tonight, we're going to focus on Saul, who becomes Paul. Actually, Paul was his Greek name. He already had it. But it became the embodiment of what Jesus was doing through him and in him. So, we're not going to do a complete character sketch because I think you guys will all leave if I try to take the time to do that. But if you're interested, there's a book by Mr. F.B. Mayer called Paul. Check it out. I think it's right we have that one over here. Yep, it's right over here. It's literally right there next to you, left shoulder. So we're not going to go through his life in his entirety. We're just going to look. I just want to focus on a man who thought he was living rightly but then had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything. Because I think that's very... That's us. Yeah. And it pertains to where we're going in the future. Yeah. Our hope and prayer as Chi Alpha is that you would have an encounter with Jesus that would change your life and then change the world. Yeah. That's yeah. us. That's our mission. Now, when I was not walking with Jesus, I loved certain types of words. And I'm not going to say them in front of you, but I think that we ought to redeem some words. And when I say redeem, I don't mean say those words in a godly way. What I mean is, when I say that we're going to teach you some F words tonight, I don't mean what you're probably thinking is what I mean. Okay? The framework for us tonight is how do we have better years ahead of us than we did behind us? Okay? So, I'm going to teach you some F words that have to do with Saul. Okay, thank you. Yes. When I think about Saul and his attack on the early church, I think of a man who was committed. Okay? So, let's just do this. In our minds, what's the thing you've been the most committed to? In your whole life. Some of us might have been sports, might have been relationships, might have been video games. I don't want to make anybody insecure. So I, whatever it is. <clears throat> the great test is on what you're committed to is how you spend your time. Yeah. So for some of us, we might be really committed to nothing. <laughs> right? You ever find someone that's like, hey, what do you want to do today? I don't want to do anything. <laughs> like, what is, what is, how does one verb that? Like, how do you do nothing? Like, I don't... I don't know what that means. So, what you spend your time on shows what you were committed to. So remember, there's not like taxis and Ubers for Saul. He's walking to destroy the church. So he's committed, right? He's committed. He was also passionate. And it's one thing, you've ever met somebody that's really passionate, but they're also really lazy. They're like, man, if I had the energy, I would things important, but it's not that important. Paul was committed, but he had passion that led to action. Okay? I like to say it like this. This is a fun word. Here's our first F word. Saul was a man of fervor. Fervor. Fancy. What is fervor? It can be defined as intensity of feeling or expression. 
passion or a state of being worked up. So the connotation isn't necessarily godly, right? You can be worked. Everybody ever worked up before and not been thinking good thoughts about somebody? Okay, give me your honesty. I see that hand. Yes. But when I think of a godly example of this, I think of my friend Jason Beard. For Jesus and for people to know him. That's it. And he's beautiful. But when I jump back to Saul, I'm sort of like, yeah, this seems like a man that was intense. Yeah. It doesn't seem, I don't get this picture of this psychotic serial killer that's just kind of wandering around like, I think I'm a very intense. Like, I don't, I don't get that image at all. I get a very intense guy that's like, no, over my dead body is the early church going to survive. Yeah. I see a man with frantic energy and a desire to eradicate what he strongly feels was wrong. He had a great passion to rid the world of the wrong that he sees. Yeah. Is that not sounding familiar? Come on. So, the question for all of us tonight is this. Are you a man or woman of fervor? Mm. Because here's the problem with passion. Passion alone always leaves you blind. Oh. Wow, yeah. So, are you a man or woman of fervor? And my dear friend Kent, he's already told us that there's no room for the apathetic or agnostic. Hey, baby. Not making a decision is making a decision. Yeah. So we're going to make a decision now whether you are actually a man or a woman or Yeah. So is the thing you're passionate about worth your life? Mm. Come on. <laughs> Has anyone ever devoted their time and energy into something that didn't last? Don't say a name. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Relationships, sports, drugs. Bitcoin. (laughs) So here's a great question. Is this thing that you're committed to, will it actually carry you somewhere? Yeah. Will it carry you through hardships? For example, like being imprisoned, like being whipped, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, stoned to death, starved, constantly exhausted, constantly cold, constantly without shelter, thirsty without drink, ridiculed and mocked and rarely appreciated. I just described Paul. And we know that he finished his race well. And I'm not going to try to prove that to you because my hope is that you will go and read the New Testament and you will find it. So, what is your passion carrying you or are you carrying your passion? A man does not go from trying to destroy a thing to then laying down his very life for the thing he was trying to destroy unless something crazy happened. Like that's a that's a 180 shift that psychologists would call insane unless something drastic happened. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what's wild. Saul's fervor to destroy actually led him to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Where did Jesus meet him but on the road to Damascus? Acts 9.22 says it like this. It says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Wait a minute. Weren't you here destroying the people that said that? Right. Now you're baffling us. The same place he was going to destroy the church, he suddenly defends it. Jesus took the fervor of Saul and transformed it. Yeah. And here's the truth. Fervor leads to relationship. Yeah. 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 But it wasn't Saul's fervor that led to relationship. Oh. It was Jesus's. Yeah. Jesus was actually after him. How do we know? Because Paul didn't say, Jesus! 
Jesus, blind me. Jesus just did that because he was after Paul. Fervor led to fellowship. Fervor led to fellowship. And that's always as it should be. Your passion will burn out unless it has something to continually give it fuel. Yeah. The kind of fellowship that can say this in Acts 20, 24. Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying the good news of God's grace. That's the kind of fellowship I'm after. What about you? Fellowship with Jesus actually means real intimacy. Not just being aware of it. Yeah. 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 So, great. Fervor leads to fellowship. What does that mean and how does it come about? Paul gives us a funny clarification later in the Bible in Galatians, Galatians 1, 15-17. Galatians 1, 15-17 says, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. So this is actually a better picture of what happened after Paul's conversion. Paul sought solitude and intimacy with Jesus. And it's such a strange thing for us, I think, because when something good happens to us, we're like, I have to tell somebody. Very rarely do we say, first you, Lord. But Saul's, which is Paul, his first response. He didn't say, you know, a day. (laughs) Maybe. My friend, Mr. Mayor, says it like this. He says, men like Ananias might reassure him. The apostles of the Lord might communicate much of his teaching and wondrous ministry. The holy beauty of the life of the infant church might calm and elevate his spirit. But above all things, he wanted to be alone with Jesus, to know him in the power of his resurrection, the anointing which makes human teaching needless because it teaches all things. When you go to the author of life, you learn all you need to know. So, remember, if you want a future that's better than what's ahead of you than what's behind you, you need solitude and intimacy with Jesus, which simply means fellowship. And fellowship with Jesus is always reflected by devotion. Always. So what are you devoted towards? So we talk about devotional time now. Like we have this idea of like, I'm going to read a book, I'm going to read the scriptures. But what did it mean for Paul? Right? He had memorized the Old Testament by the time he was 13. Doesn't mean you need to go back and read it some more. But what did it mean to have a devotional life when you're Paul? It means everything that you did, breathe, and thought about was for the King Jesus. That's what devotion meant to him. So it doesn't mean something different for us. Hmm. So, is your fervor or passion leading you to Jesus or just leading you blind? And if I can be honest, I was blind because I didn't see Jesus. Paul at least got to be blind because he did see him. Our fellowship with Jesus, our fellowship with Jesus, Paul was able to walk through this life and the troubles that came his way and not quit. So, the hardest time in your life did you barely make it through? Or did you have a hope that carried you through? So, here's a picture of my youngest son, Eli, at a hospital. <clears throat> Eli was born with uh, two collapsed lungs. And as a father, and my wife can attest this, you're just like, what do you do? You know, what do you do? This is what, for 10 days, this is all we could do. We couldn't hold him. 
We, we couldn't do anything. Couldn't even feed him. We just got to be there and pray over him. We got to, we were reading him Chronicles and Narnia. We were just being with our little boy for 10 days. It was the longest 10 days of my life, if I'm honest. And the only thing that carried us through was Jesus. Yeah. And the fact that Jesus had given us friends that just transcend geography, that just transcend mere acquaintanceship. We were carried by our fellowship. And so, I think I have some other pictures of him after this. There he is now. So I, I know, I know that this is a great, happy story so far. I've got a healthy five-month-old baby boy. Thank you, Jesus. Great lungs. He's a great screamer. He's really good. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And I know not every story ends with this. I know not every story does. But hope with Jesus will carry you through whatever the storms of life will bring you. Okay. We start the story speaking to Saul, but he's forever known as the Apostle Paul. And you never see his intimates say, Hey, Saul, like trying to dig on him. Because oh, they knew what that name represented. Mm, yeah. You're worse. And if your real friends are only bringing out the worst in you, they are terrible friends. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So we've got the Apostle Paul, a different name to go with a different life. Yeah. And we know that fellowship with Jesus is not just solitude. He was in solitude, and then what did he do? He went and he led to action. Yeah. So fellowship with Jesus always leads to action. What you do and what you don't do. And a motivation that comes from love. This is not a trick question. But does anybody ever think of the Apostle Paul and be like, that guy was full of fear? No. No way. Most of us would say, Paul was as bold as a lion. He feared nothing. <laughs> What's the scariest thing you can think of? Don't shout it out. Don't shout it out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah, anybody have friends that are afraid of snakes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you ever, you ever like, Anybody still have the phobia of like you gotta check the toilet before you leave your dinner? And then you see that one YouTube short that there is a snake in there and you're like, oh gosh, I can do it. I have a friend uh, who was terrified of snakes and we were walking in this, the national forest and I'm just walking and all of a sudden he's drawn his sidearm that I didn't know he carried uh, and is shooting at this snake that was just chilling. Like, like that's fear, I think. I think that's fear. It's like yeah. the brain shut off. It was like I gotta, I gotta deal with this thing. Like, what about, what about clowns? Anybody have like a clown stand? Like, yeah. And some of you that are like, yeah, I'm not afraid of clowns. 3 a.m. You wake up, there's a clown in your room. You get real quick, you're gonna be afraid of clowns, okay? Anybody, anybody afraid of like uh, dark rooms, right? Like or or like a new a new place that's dark. You're like, what was that? You ever have that thing you're in a room and you're like, you think you saw something? Yes. What if you did? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, what about scary movies? Is scary movies freaking out? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I remember, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. Uh, Freddy Krueger, you guys know that one? I was like, I don't remember, I was young and I watched it. It's like, I, was, I had nightmares for weeks. I, yeah. Anybody, uh, anybody afraid of death? Yes. Evil? Demons? Yeah, get real. Woo. I think that's some of the things that most of us, if we could, we could compile a list, be like, yeah, you know, we're afraid of that. 
But I think the true test to know what's really scary is if you want to know what's really scary, you need to find out what the scary things are afraid of. Let's look at Matthew 8, 28. Matthew 8, 28. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. The mere presence of God freaks demons out. So if you want to know what's really scary, you need to figure out what scares the scary things. And I promise you that the demons are scared of Jesus. If you ever see uh, an angel show up in the Bible, most times when it's a dude, the guy's always on his face freaking out. The girls are like, this is great. You know? For some reason, the guy's are like, I can't kill me, God. You know, kill me. And, and angels are only the messengers of God's holiness. They're only the mess- messengers of it. The scariest thing in the universe is the pure and holy triune God. When you come face to face with goodness itself, it reveals what you aren't. Jesus doesn't even have to say a word. He doesn't say a word that demons are freaking out. He's just being Jesus. I promise you right now, goodness itself is the scariest thing in the universe. You've never seen anything as scary as as something that is completely and totally good. And if we read more in Matthew, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I don't think God would have been on any of our lists. Maybe some of you would. Psalm 103. We're getting better. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And when I talk about fear of God, I'm not talking like he's the boogeyman, hope he doesn't pop out of the closet and scare me. Like that's not what we're talking about because God's all good, not all creepy. Right? He's all good. So whatever fearful thing you're thinking of, it's not him. This is the kind of fear I think Paul had. A fear that was birthed out of intimacy. Has anyone ever been afraid of a newborn baby? Yes. <laughs> afraid of it or afraid of holding it? Let me be real clear with you. A newborn baby might be the most defenseless thing on the planet. Like it can't do anything to you. I do get the fear of holding a baby. Anybody remember the first time you held a baby? You're not afraid of the kid. You're afraid you're going to sneeze and drop it. Right? Or something's gonna happen. Like when I had my first son, I was terrified. To, I was like, "What do I do? How do I hold his neck? I'm so afraid I'm gonna hurt him." I actually, actually avoided holding other people's babies. You want to hold the baby? No, I'm sick. Like when someone holds, puts a baby in your hand, you don't start like doing helicopters, right? Like you're not like, "I'm gonna play tag," but I got this baby. I'm so playing, you know? Like, like no way. There's a seriousness that is set into your life if I were to set my son Eli into your hands. You'd be foolish to start doing something stupid and silly. And that's fear of God. That's what we're talking about. For some reason, we treat our lives like they're less valuable than that baby. Who's a flirt? Anybody like to flirt? (laughs) Why is it... Why is it that we flirt with things that could kill us? It's just a little bit, right? 
you don't understand. This much isn't going to kill me. Why do we flirt with things that can kill us? I was the kid. Vulnerability time. I was the kid whose mom said, that stove is hot, don't touch it. I said, bet. <laughs> guess what I don't do anymore? I don't touch hot stoves, okay? Because that hurt real bad, right? For some reason, that's what we do with God. We're like, you tell me not to do it? Touching it. Ouch. Listen, if you're scared of the dark room, do you just run into every dark room you can? No! Right? You're like, face your fear. You're like, you're a liar. You don't do that. Okay? If you're going to go into a dark room, you either avoid dark rooms or you bring a light. Right? You're like, I'm going to be prepared. Right? When you have intimate fellowship with God, this is what you realize. You realize that to break a law really means you're breaking a heart. I have a fear of breaking my wife's heart, not because I'm afraid of her physically harming me. Okay? I would win. I have a fear of watching her cry out of sadness. Yeah. I have a fear of hurting her. I don't want to make my children cry. I have a fear of hurting good things. So you're never breaking the law only. You're only ever breaking God's heart. That's what happens every time you don't actually have fear of the Lord. That's what it means. It means you don't care. And Paul says it like this in Romans 6. One, what should we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's a fear of the Lord. No, Paul says, that's stupid. Why would I go break his heart when I know what it costs for him to have me? Yeah. Yeah. Paul was serious about doing away with the things of God. or things that hurt God. Yeah. Read Corinthians. Read Romans. Yeah. Tell yeah. me how he said, sinning is good. When you realize what it costs Jesus to save and redeem mankind, you don't flirt with things that hurt his people. Yeah. You realize that when you do, you do the things you, when you love him, you do what he does and what he loves. When you love God, you do what he loves. Yeah. And when you do the things that he says to do, you actually have life, not restriction. Yeah. Psalms 145, 19 says it like this. It says, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Yes. He hears their cry and he saves them. This isn't the, the cry of, oh, the boogeyman's after me. It's, Dad, I'm scared. Help me. Yeah. When you do the things he says not to do, you get death and pain. And just real quick, anybody have, like, really bad credit card debt? Don't say anything. <laughs> Sin is like a credit card, okay? You can get what you want now. But it has the worst interest rate you have ever heard of. You will pay for it later, every time. And Paul says it like this in Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Listen, the devil's after you. I don't think I need to convince you of that. He's after you. And he has fervor to kill you. Or at the very least, to take you out of fellowship with God. You know what he does to Christians that he can't get to commit some gross sin? He distracts them. Yeah. My dear friend, Winky Pratney says it like this. He says, no disciple of Jesus can afford to waste time. The sin of wasting God's time has led more disciples back into their old ways than any other. Satan knows that no sold out young man or woman of God would ever deliberately do some gross sin. Knowing this, he works to divert their attention to good things that are not the best things. Yeah. To get them into things that they could do that Jesus has not led them. 
to do. To turn their concern into some sidetrack that leads them away from what God has for them. Remember, our framework is how do we have a better future than past? We need fellowship with Jesus that leads to intimacy. We need a fear of breaking God's heart. And it breaks his heart when we waste time. Fervor led to fellowship with Jesus. And fellowship with Jesus always leads you to love what he loves and to not do what he hates. Okay. Are you ready for our last F as we begin to close? Alright. Fellowship with Jesus always leads to our last F, which is fruit. Fruit. Did you guess it? Did you have it? You got years ago. You nailed it. What God does in you, that's fruit. To prevent that from happening is rebellion. Let's think about this biblically. Ananias to Paul. Paul to everyone else. Yeah, everyone else. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Well, you've heard the presence of many witnesses and trust reliable men who will then be able to teach others also. Yeah. What, what are we to entrust? What are we to entrust? What is fruit? Paul talks about fruit in Galatians. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You ever thought about how you get patience if you're never around people? Like, how, how do I become a more patient man alone? I can do what I want when I want. It's not very hard to be patient, right? So, you've got fellowship with Jesus. You're not doing the things that God hates. You're doing the things that He likes. You've got the fear of hurting Him. And then you're like, but I don't want to be around people because they're terrible. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. <clears throat> you cannot love God and hate people. Yeah. You cannot, cannot love God and hate what he died for. Yeah. Paul says it like this in Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? God wants heaven populated. Yeah. Right? If he wanted to just be him and the angels, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It already was. You know? yeah. So obviously he doesn't. You know, when you love someone, you love what they love. Yeah. You can't love God and hate people. You can't have fellowship with Jesus and not love what he died to save. Yeah. Luke 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What's one of the first commands in the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply. Mm. <clears throat> this one's going to hurt. You can only produce what you've become. Yeah. An apple tree doesn't make grapes. Yep. You can only produce what you become. If you become a son or a daughter of God, you can produce that. But until you do, you never will. There's a real battle going on, and you and I are in the thick of it. The war has been won, thank God. We know the end. But there's still fighting to be done, character to be grown, and a harvest to be harvested. Yeah. My friend Eli Stewart says it like this. He says, some of us are under the, the notion that first I gotta get my heart right. Then I'm gonna go out and reach people. Eli says like this, he says, the battle for souls is always twofold. When we're young in the Lord, we think that I must win the battle for me before I can win it for somebody else. But when you fight for just yourself, you always lose. Yeah. Here's the trick. When you fight for someone else to win the battle, you actually win two battles. Yeah. The one for your soul is one by winning and fighting for the souls of others. Yeah. Yeah. So tonight, 
Perhaps you're like feeling like I got good fellowship, feeling like you're pretty holy, fear of hurting God. Perhaps you're like, man, I don't know that I love what he loves. Well, you need to win the souls of others. That's what you need to do. Though I am free and belong to no one, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel. Mm -hmm. What are you not willing to become? Mm -hmm. To seek and save that which is lost is our call. And our our dear heroes of the faith, the Moravians, said it like this, to win for the Lamb the reward of his suffering. Let's invite the worship team back. Come up here, help me close this out. As we look at the life of Paul, I hope you're reminded of your own relationship with Jesus. I hope you're seeing some similarities. I know that I have. My actually birth name is not Dryden. Yeah, it's not. It's not. When I came to Sam Houston, that was not what my mother called me. It was not Dryden. I came here a very, very lost guy. Very Jason, true? Very true. Yeah. And when I got met, like some of you, I was blinded by the love of God. I'd never been treated so well in my entire life in a way that I knew I didn't deserve. Anybody been treated well and you know you didn't deserve it? And God actually gave me a new name. I didn't choose it. But the guys that I was with started calling me Dryden. And it represented who I had become. A new life. And that's our story, isn't it? You might not have a new name, but you do have a new life. So tonight I'm hoping that some of us will be filled with gratitude. And filled with awe that he actually still wants to do something through us. So, you want to have a great summer? You want to have a great life, a great future, better than your past? You must be as Paul was. Fellowship with Jesus that leads to the fear of hurting Jesus, which leads to producing the fruit of Jesus. Tonight, before baptism, we have to search our hearts, right? We have to see which of these three are we lacking in? Fellowship, fear, or fruit? Perhaps the Holy Spirit would speak to you tonight about which one he would like to grow you in so you might go closer in intimacy and have a better future than past. I know of no better way to close than but a prayer from Paul himself. This is in Ephesians. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen.